so here we go, talking about Jesus and the heart of God. And uh, what I would say to you, because I know I'm going to say some things that if you are very comfortable in, um, in the Christianity that has existed primarily in the last 500 years or so, some of the things I'm going to say to you are disturbing. And I'm okay with that, as you know. Um, but I hope that you won't just run out of here and say Pete is crazy, which could be true. <laughs> uh, but I hope that you'll rather think of this as an academic challenge. If I say something, because I know it will, uh, about something that is going to challenge a core principle of Christianity as we know it today. It wasn't an issue in its origins, but it is now, and it's problematic. And I want to face it head on because it's something that you got to deal with, you got to think about. But first, let's just talk about the images of Jesus that maybe. You have it. So I asked the question, who's your favorite Jesus? Some of us, this is our favorite Jesus. This is incredible old Jesus <laughs> hanging on a cross. This guy is ripped. Uh, he'll give Arnold Schwarzenegger a run for his money even in his crime. So some of us have that idea of Jesus. All powerful. Some of us have this idea of Jesus uh, where he's right there with the founding fathers, with the with the capital of the United States in the background, he's holding the Declaration of Independence uh, as if that was the primary thing that was really motivating everything in our country. Some of you remember this one. Uh, this is the Sacred Heart Jesus, who actually is also from Sweden. He's got the blue eyes, the dark blonde hair. Um, in contrast, we have uh, this Jesus, uh, who may be actually <laughs> more, uh, would look more like the actual Jesus of history, uh, but also a woman like Bob Marley, uh, which, is, which is cool. And I think in terms of popularity, uh, in terms of how we like to talk about Jesus, uh, which in a very, very friendly way, uh, which in a way talks about the success of the church, talking about the love of God, some of us love this good buddy Jesus uh, that's just there to you know, hang with you as a good old bud, and we'll see uh, what's going on. Well, the questions I have for you when we talk about Jesus is, uh, are you following the Jesus of history or the Jesus of fantasy? Are you following a Jesus who is exclusive or inclusive, which we'll get to uh, later? And are we talking about a Jesus who is primarily concerned with sin management, making sure you got your sins forgiven so that you could go to heaven? Are we talking about something bigger? Uh, there's an author, this guy, David Gushy, was a, is still a very significant voice, an American evangelicalist. He was a big dog. And I talked about this, um, uh, actually, the last time I talked about uh, this, this series about Jesus. Uh, he wrote a book called After Evangelicalism, uh, which you might recognize that there were some serious academic problems that he, as a leader within evangelicalism and within the Baptist world, had problems with, and so he wrote about it as he was leaving, saying, here's why. And if you want an overview of what those things were, it's in my blog today, so you can go hunt that down uh, through our website, or I printed off uh, several copies of an article that he uh, published in uh, Baptist News Global. All the handouts are on that back table in the corner, and if you want to do the survey and turn it into a possible basket for that as well, with envelopes, if you want to Put it in on the You're welcome to do that. So please grab one of these. Please read this because it's a compelling argument. And what he what he suggests, and this may be startling to you, is that the four things that you see here are really pseudo Jesuses, pseudo Jesuses. And the first one may be the most startling, which is Jesus the crucified Savior. 
And the reason that may be startling is because this one is the easiest one, the proof text in the Bible. And it is the dominant view of Jesus at our time. And the, the gist of it is this, so I'll share now with you what's called the Roman road. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You, me, every person who ever lived. The wages of sin, our sin, is death. In many forms, we experience when we sin, definition of sin, which I like a lot, is called the, um, the culpability or the absence or the wreckage of shalom. So it's anytime we get in the way of the shalom of God for ourselves, for others, for the planet, that's sin because God is all about shalom. So when we're against that, we're against God, and we're really ultimately against ourselves and against each other. So it's the disturbance of shalom. So if that's the sin that, that leads to death, and we experience that in many ways, we experience that in real time in our actual lives, you're probably going to do something today that you wish you hadn't. Uh, last night, many of you wish you hadn't watched the Warriors game. And you got a very disappointing you, <laughs> right? Uh, some of you are going to say something cross to somebody, and it's going to cause a rift in your relationship. Uh, some of you are going to eat too many French fries today and feel like a slug. Uh, some of you are, uh, who knows what, but there are going to be things you're going to just have a little taste of death with that. And of course, we know that these bodies are not made to live forever, and eventually uh, we will die. And so there's a sort of a final death. And part of the whole, whole idea of the, the Roman road is that you know, sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden, which is its own problem, which I may touch on today or may wait for another day. But, but that rendering is a very Pauline rendering who made up the idea um, to make a greater point to the Roman church. Again, I don't want to get too far on that today. We'll be here all day. But anyway, sin exists. Our experiences of death exist. They're there. All of a sudden, falls short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. But while we were yet sinning, Christ died for us that we might be redeemed. So we look at that crucifixion of Jesus as the perfect Lamb of God uh, who is sacrificed, the only appropriate and big enough sacrifice to atone for all the sins of the world forevermore. And part of the reason for that is, is that we've come to look at Jesus as absolutely perfect in every way, blemish-free, and because there's part of the theology that wraps an idea of incarnation basically saying that he was God, a demigod, if you will, half God, half man, or fully God, fully human, if you want to look at it that way, because that's in the mix. And that's the only way that this crucifixion, this atonement, can actually do its atoning work. you with me so far? And so the end piece of the Roman road all of sin falls short of the glory of God, wait to sin of death, but while we are sinning, Christ died for us, so that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the full Roman road. The invitation then is, accept Jesus, accept the atonement, accept the sacrifice that was made for you, so that you can be certain that your sins are forgiven because somebody died in your place, so that you will be welcomed with God in eternity in heaven. It's your ticket to heaven. Right? This is the dominant Christian view. But here's what I want to challenge you to think about. And this may be unsettled to you. So, fair warning. I think I've built this up enough. <laughs> uh, first of all, our idea of incarnation of Jesus, uh, and this is certainly a, 
uh, played out and, and the birth narratives of Jesus, which, you know, the New Testament uh, Gospels were written many decades after Jesus, after, and by this time, by the time they were actually formally written and passed around, some of the stories, you know, obviously circulated for a long time, but the audience was changing rapidly for the New Testament writers, more and more non-Jewish than Jewish. By the end of the first century, very few Jewish uh, converts coming into Christianity. It's almost all non-Jewish. That's important because one of the concepts that Jewish people then and now would have a real hard time with is the idea of Jesus as demigod, where God uh, comes together with a human being and out of that is born a half-God, half-human being. And that's part of what we see in the birth narratives of Jesus, which related issues. Do you have a demigod in Jesus? The reason that's a problem is because in Genesis, uh, there's a, before Abraham shows up, there are a series of stories which are really um, it's kind of the Jewish mythology in contrast to other mythologies in the Middle East. And one of the mythologies there was to talk about when angels came and slept with women, and they created the Nephilim, who were bigger, tougher than any human being, because they were demigods. And part of the Jewish understanding, and in their statement, in their mythology, talking about that story, they say, in their understanding, God wants nothing to do with that. And so God forbade it and made it impossible because, again, God wants nothing to do with a demigod. That's not part of the plan. So we have a problem. If then part of the plan for correcting the sin problem is that God creates a demigod, which God already said, I don't want that to be part of the plan. Challenge number one. There's another way, by the way, to think about incarnation, word made flesh, which I think is very appealing. Come Tuesday, and we'll talk about that. <laughs> but the other problem uh, with the tone uh, idea, the crucified Savior, that we have Jesus dying as God, man, to atone for the sins of the world, uh, has to do with another Jewish problem. And the Jewish problem is simply this. There's this guy named Abraham, and he had a son named Isaac. And from Isaac, he was going to have all these descendants. It's all part of how Judaism started. And then one day, we're not exactly sure how this all played out. It's story, it's narrative, it's meant to be a story. Um, Abraham feels like he's hearing from God to take Isaac up onto a mountain and sacrifice him to God. And he feels strongly enough about it that he actually makes the plan and makes the march to the mountain and climbs the mountain with Isaac, has Isaac carry his own wood, upon which Abraham is going to burn him and offer him as a sacrifice to God. And this is a story that, you know, in Jewish understanding, the story about the faithfulness of Abraham to keep going through with this, he's trusting God so much, and also the faithfulness of God, because just as Abraham was about to kill his own son, which is deeply problematic. And he hears a voice from heaven saying, stop. He says, I don't want you to do this. I don't want you to take a life in my name. 
I don't want human sacrifice. And then uh, Abraham looks, and there's this ram in the thicket stuck. He kills that instead, and that's the sacrifice. So God provides sacrifice. Now, in Christianese, we look at that as an allusion to what was going to happen with Jesus. The only problem with that allusion is this. The whole point of the story that God was trying to make was I don't want anything to do with human sacrifice. Not at all. And now, all of a sudden, the answer to the problem coming from God is human sacrifice. No wonder Jewish people look at this and they're like, huh, there's some problems here with this. Now, to a Jewish mindset or to a non-Jewish mindset, this kind of feels good. Because in their mythology, at the time of Jesus and beyond, this idea of the demigod was not a problem. And the idea of sacrifice was still going on in different uh, parts of the world. By 70 AD, it was done in Jerusalem. There weren't any more sacrifices. So Judaism itself moved on after that point, away from sacrificial thinking whatsoever. But the Gentile world was still in it. So it made sense to a Gentile mindset, which is why you see it more and more in the later writings of the New Testament. But to a Jewish mind, this is very difficult. So you can think I'm nuts and a heretic, and what I just said is deeply challenging to the way we think about Christianity today, because the way we think about Christianity today has largely been shaped over the last several hundred years, not the last 2,000. So that's just one thing to think about. And again, Tuesday, come and talk about, well, how do we make sense of this? By the way, even though I don't resonate with the whole uh, crucified thing, I do respect the atonement idea. So I respect people who do get that, and I, I respect the grace that is communicated. Because at the end of the day, that's what the story is trying to represent, is the grace of God for the world. That I can stand and sing about all day long, because that's true. The particulars of the substitution, penal substitutionary atonement theory, I've got problems with. But if you're there and you want to sing about it and you want to stand with me and sing, I'll join you in the song because at the end of the day, I know what you're really singing about is the grace of God. Right? At the end of the day, that's what it's about. At the end of the day, that's what it's about. Well, there are other pseudo-Jesuses out there. Uh, one is a Hallmark Christmas movie, Jesus, and that's the one where it all ends out just, just perfect, wraps it up with a nice bow. Uh, this is the good buddy Jesus, you know, that's just you know, bought the Christmas tree farms, having hard times, and then everything works out in the end, and Santa comes and saves it. Well, we have that kind of a fuzzy, you know, soft, warm, fuzzy Jesus, and that certainly is for a lot of people. Uh, then you also have another pseudo Jesus, the Jesus who wants you to succeed. Now, it's not that Jesus wants you to fail, that's not it, but in our country, we are a very driven culture toward success. And some in our culture have put Jesus right in there with the whole thing. Uh, just simply suggesting that that's what, uh, that's what the whole thing is about. Uh, follow Jesus and the 10 steps toward financial success, and you'll own the mansion before you know it. That kind of thinking. Now, is there an ethic in Judaism and Christianity that uh, helps you build a successful life? Absolutely, I'm certain of that. But one of the things you have to realize is that one of the great challenges of Jesus' life is that he was not about upward mobility, but downward mobility. He wasn't about serving himself. He was about serving all. He wanted everybody to experience life and life abundance. 
And he was willing to lay down his own life for us, even though it was wrong. I'll get more to how we understand the death of Jesus in a minute. But what do we do with this Jesus if our idea is he's our, our model and our route to success? If we actually read Jesus and find out that he gave it all up for everybody else, how do we deal with that tension? Because that's the Jesus we're going to find out is real. And then final, finally, uh, we have the pseudo-Jesus, which is the vacant Jesus, uh, which is filled with your own agenda, Jesus. And this has caused a lot of bloodshed in the world, uh, believing that we're the nation of God, we're the people of God, so whatever we do must be fine with God, and that's caused lots of problems. Lots of people have been really beat up in our world uh, with this kind of Jesus. Uh, Jesus wants women to stay at home, and you're not really equal with men. It's called complementarianism. It's very popular in the evangelical world, and so that's what Jesus wants. So women, I'm sorry, but you're just not equal. That's going in your own agenda with that. LGBTQ friends, same thing with you. Sorry, but my Jesus doesn't like you. And so you're going to have to either stop it or, or just forget it. Or, uh, or the, uh, the, the chattel slavery Jesus. I'm pretty confident, new recruits from Africa, that Jesus is on my side and is with us. And so you're just going to have to deal with this. And good news, I'm going to tell you, the Roman road, so that after you die from years of slavery and your mind with, you're at least going to know you're going to heaven. This is fill in the blank of Jesus, and it's deadly, and it still hurts today. It's, it's awful. So what did David Gushing do? If these were sort of four primary ways of thinking about Jesus that are false, uh, what did he see, and what did he encourage us to see? I'm just going to rapid fire these for you. These are examples of the historical Jesus uh, that we see in the scriptures himself as the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus created and articulated the love command as the highest statement of moral obligation. Love the Lord your God with your soul, might, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Jesus placed priority on the poor. Yes, he placed priority on the poor because he knew the poor didn't have the same power as those who had money. And so he spent time with them to elevate them and to empower them and to provide for them. Jesus demonstrated openness to Gentiles. That's another whole, uh, whole mess of other religions that he was okay with and communicated with, even healed. Jesus included women among his close followers. So those who want to keep women in their place have a problem with Jesus because Jesus elevated women. Remember, Mary the Tower, right, from John, equivalent to the Apostle Peter in terms of food chain. That's massive, and he was famous for that. Uh, Jesus demonstrated openness and love to children. Now you might think, well, you know, who doesn't love kids? Well, I'll tell you who doesn't love kids the way Jesus loved kids were people back in antiquity. They were the ultimate kids that would be seen and not heard uh, area. They, they didn't have rights. They weren't treated the same as we treat them uh, today. And yet Jesus was known for welcoming them to himself. By the way, shout out. Uh, to Shannon's two kids today, uh, Kayla and Xander, who helped put your communion place together. So, where you go? You got good kids, Shannon. Uh, next, Jesus relaxed Jewish food laws and related regulations about purity. So, he had a different idea about Judaism. He wasn't afraid to talk about it. So, actually, the kind of stuff that, that uh, causes problems for me and crosswalk around here, I think that's actually right in line with the ethos of Jesus. 
he was constantly thinking, well, think about it this way. Well, maybe we should think about things differently. And he instituted the Lord's Supper, was, which was meant to remember him in his life. Furthermore, um, Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God, and that was the point. Uh, you'll hear the word commonwealth around these parts because that's really what it represented. It wasn't so much as a kingdom uh, with a king. That's difficult for us to imagine in our country, but it was meant to be a place where everybody had equal uh, share to absolutely everything. Everybody could thrive. That was sort of the idea of the kingdom of God. Jesus healed and exercised demons through the power of the Holy Spirit. So there was something at work in him that was greater than the, the powers of our day. Uh, that manifests itself in healing from those things. Jesus understood himself as commissioned by God to ministry, sent by God, his loving Father, or Abba, and anointed by the Spirit, coming as the Messiah, a Messiah of Israel. So this is part of the incarnation, a different way to think about it. Rather than demigod, if we take a look at John's prologue, in, in which he says, in the beginning, the Word was God, the Word was with God, and then later says that in Jesus, the Word became flesh. Another way to render these two things is this. Uh, what if, more than any other person, more than any other human being uh, that we have seen so far, Jesus was opening himself up to the presence of God that was already within him and allowed that to flourish in extremely powerful ways. Now, I would, I would suggest that he had one of these mystical union kind of moments, aha, satori moment, uh, right around his baptism, because all the Gospels talk about this thing that happened, that that's when the Holy Spirit descended upon him. And I wonder if that's the time when he woke up, when he woke up to what was all around him and within him, and it radically changed his life. From that point on, everything he did was motivated out of this relationship within him and with God who was in him. So there's an incarnation that is really pronounced and developed in him so much so that when people saw him walking around, they were saying, we're seeing the face of God. That makes a lot of sense to me. It allows Jesus to be special. It allows Jesus to be worthy of looking at, listening to, and following a different way of thinking about incarnation. And if you're connected dots a little bit, it also means that we have the same capacity. We may never achieve that kind of openness or maturity or depth of relationship that Jesus had with Papa. But when Jesus told his disciples, you will do even greater things than what you've seen me do, he wasn't kidding. And lo and behold, the disciples went out and leaned into that and they started to do the same kinds of things that Jesus did. The Spirit was working in and through them in many of the same ways. In healings, and in pushing the boundaries of thinking and theology, uh, abandoning many rules in favor of following the top two, loving God and loving neighbor. Profound stuff. Maybe we've missed something. And our desire for the demigod, which is so familiar, by the way, also keeps God unattainable and makes Jesus unrelatable. Instead, what about this? Now we've got somebody who really is like us, really is flesh and blood, and found a way that led to life in a profound way. So Jesus understood this, the final little bullet point here that Gushin provides. Jesus understood that contrary to common expectation, his messiahship 
and suffering, rejection, and death, rather than triumph. That is not a successful road. And he knew where it was headed. And he was willing to lay everything down for a much, much greater going. And he invites us to trust that kind of generosity. So maybe start with you at this point, because a lot of the historical Jesus stuff, Agashi writes, uh, and you know, he comes from uh, deep theological and biblical studies, no slouch. Um, he's not mentioning much about sin management. He's not mentioning much about, you know, say these words, accept Jesus into your heart and know you're going to go to heaven. That's not part of the thing that David is seeing. He's suggesting that there's a historical Jesus that really operated very differently than that. What do you do with that? Well, it actually comes to bear on how we understand this text from John. By the way, I give you some good commentary uh, from another source uh, on this in my blog. So you get some bonus stuff on the blog today. You get this article uh, in there, and then you also get some really good commentary on a particular phrase that shows up here. So this is um, just before Jesus is going to be arrested. Like this night, he's going to get arrested, he's going to get beat up real bad, and he's going to die the next day. This is the last night. And he's talking to the disciples about you know, what's to come. They don't get it. They're confused. And so he says to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. And trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my Father's home. If this were not so, what I've told you, I'm going to prepare a place for you. When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you'll be with me. You'll always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I'm going. Uh, no, we don't, Lord, Thomas said. He's uh, often called doubting Thomas. He should be called brave Thomas or courageous Thomas or tough Thomas because he's the one that asks the question that nobody else does. We don't know. We have no idea where you're going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except for me. If you'd really know me, you would know who my Father is, my daddy. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You've seen him at work in me. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. And Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show them to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or at least believe because of all the work you see me do. I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works as I have done, and even greater works, because I am going to be with the Father. You can ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. So that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So a warrior's win tomorrow night will be great. In Jesus' name. Well, the real kicker here is this I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, if you believe in the penal substitutionary atonement theory, which has a demigod dying on behalf of the whole world because that demigod is perfect and therefore is the only atoning sacrifice that is going to satisfy the wrath of God, then this becomes incredibly exclusivist. Jesus is saying, in that way of thinking, 
If you don't believe in me, you are toast because the only way to the Father is through me. And some of us, honestly, that was part of the equation for why we said yes in the first place. At least part. Because there was some fear as we're thinking about this story. And depending on what kind of church he grew up in, not some fear, a lot of fear. And even if he couldn't quite understand or articulate it, it's like you're thinking, look, I don't know, but I'm not going to take a chance. If, if what this is saying means that, I don't want to go to hell. And so even if I understand it, what that pastor is saying is if you just utter the words, call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. I'm in. There may have been other things involved in your decision. We'll talk more about born again and sin and salvation in coming weeks. But, but for you, there may have been more involved. Uh, maybe you're much more aware of how much you had disturbed the shalom in your life and others' lives. And so you really wanted to know you were okay with God. And this sounded great and sounded all-inclusive. And so you're like, yes, I'm in. And so for you, it was the greatest gift in the world. And by the way, that's part of my story. I get that. I know it. I know how elated I was uh, when I made a very uh, adult decision to do that. Felt like a weight was off my shoulders. It's a wonderful feeling, the grace of God. It's a very powerful thing to know that God actually welcomes you much. It's life-changing. I take nothing away from that. But there is a problem here. If we believe that this statement was meant to be exclusivist on the part of Jesus, so what do we do with all the people that never got the chance? Never got the chance to even know about this Jesus who is the way of truth and life. What about them? Or what if, or what if the, their means of, of hearing about this Jesus, the way of truth and life, the only possible way to God, if that's the gatekeeper and the whole shebang, what if the person who, who uttered those words was a really unconscious, horrible person? What if the one who was uttering these words was a father who was abusing his children? A pastor, a priest, who's abusing his flock, saying, you better believe. I would think if I was in those shoes of the one being abused, I wouldn't believe the person, and I wouldn't want to spend eternity with that person. I think I'd rather roll the dice. And I wonder how many people have. There was a, just happened to be a Catholic missionary that, I'm, I'm a fan of Catholicism, so don't get me wrong on this anyway, but the Catholic um, missionary went up to Alaska to convert Eskimos um, uh, who are indigenous people there. And um, so he makes the, makes the plea about what Jesus is offering as penal substitutionary atonement. And um, so, well, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except for me. And so the, the chief of this particular tribe said, so let me understand this, because this kind of answers part of a theological question that I raised today. Just let me get this straight. If, if we didn't know anything about Jesus um, and we died, God would be graceful toward us uh, because we didn't know anything about Jesus. 
But now that you've told us about Jesus, if we say no to Jesus, <laughs> we're toast. Is that what you said? That's part of the problem? See the problem logic? And of course, there are many people in the world today that want nothing to do with Jesus because of who else is identified with Jesus. If in another part of the world, you can't stand the United States because that's what you've been told to do. Your culture around you has said the United States is evil, and they are saying we're a Christian nation. Why in the world would you ever consider Jesus? You wouldn't. So if we see penal substitutionary atonement as the way, the primary way of thinking, then that means that this statement is exclusivist. There's no way around it. And some of you have come to me and talked to me over my years here. Uh, what do we do with this? And at one time, that's how I thought. That's how I thought it was. Until I didn't. Because I started thinking about it in a different way. If Jesus really is one who was all about grace and all about inclusion, because he was, and when he's saying, uh, haven't you seen, you've seen the Father through me, you've seen Dad working in me, he's not saying, give God, necessarily anyway, but isn't he saying, guys, you've been with me for three years, you've been watching what I do, you know my rhythms, you know that I'm a lifelong learner, I'm always thinking about stuff, wondering, you know, I, the expansiveness of God and our theological moorings and all that stuff, and you see me kneel and service to people, and God shows up and that in me for them. It's a win-win all the way around. Uh, you guys have seen me individually uh, be with a person, give tremendous grace. Remember all the stories: the woman caught adultery, the woman at the well, two women by the way, uh, the lepers who thought they were born into sin or caught sin somehow, the guy who was born blind. All these are examples of individuals who really needed to know that they were deeply loved by God. That was grace happening right there. I remember on my Sermon on the Mount, my, my stuff speech, when I talked about turning the other cheek and going the extra mile and giving a shirt off your back. Remember, guys, that was about social justice and telling you how to do nonviolent activism so that the whole world would be a more fair, just place. That's justice. That's grace and justice. You, you, you saw us do that. We did it together, right, guys? And, guys, you remember you wake up one breakfast and you'd be like, where's Jesus? And I come waltzing in, you know, a couple hours later after being alone because I needed time alone with God, just to breathe, do some mindfulness, listen to the Spirit of God to instruct my life. You guys remember doing that, and I encourage you to do the same. You remember that, right? That was a God thing working in us. You remember us being together and just breaking bread together and having a good time and learning together through the ups and downs. You remember when Peter made that statement about, I will follow you even to the grave? And I said, oh, I wish so, but you're going to die me three times. And then he got to get remember all that stuff? All those things. And yet he was, well, this is getting a little ahead of the story, but all those things that individual was welcomed back. Remember all these stories? This is, this is the way. This life is the truth. This is the life, what we've been doing together. That is the way to the Abba. That is the way you experience the love of the Father. It is not make the right statement at the right time. It's follow me. Follow me. Because the way that I am trying to teach you and model is the way to do life in the Spirit of God, which you have seen working through me abundantly. When I hear that, 
that sounds so much more interesting, so much more expansive, so much more inclusive. That makes so much more sense of a God who would bother to create in the first place and welcome us into the co-creative process as human beings. That makes so much sense. Takes nothing away from the grace of God. It actually expands it exponentially because it means we all really are loved by God. We're all invited to follow in these footsteps, stretching, kneeling, gracing and justicing, uh, connecting with God and being incarnate beings with each other, the spirit of God flowing in us, among us, through us. To me, that's a Jesus I will give my life for. And I have. That is a Jesus whose message to me is incredibly compelling. And by the way, that doesn't take heaven off the, off the thing at all, actually. The more that I'm in this realm, the more I'm experiencing the presence of God because I'm trying my best to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, the more confidence I have that, what, that there is a more after death because I'm experiencing it now. You will not be able to study enough to firm up enough your substitutionary atonement belief statement to give you confidence as you approach the grave that you nailed because there will be something in you that says, ah, but what if, what if I slipped? What if I didn't do enough? Can I lose this thing? But if you're already living in it, you know you can never lose it. It allows you to be more and more like Jesus, generous, graceful, given, joyful, all the fruits of the Spirit come into play because you are not following under threat except for maybe fear of missing out. You are following because the Spirit of God is moving you every step of the way, giving you hope for today and tomorrow and forever. That's Jesus worth following. Now, if you're uncomfortable with that, you still get to keep substitutionary atonement theory. It's still a part of the mix. I respect it. I do. But I'm so grateful that there are so many other reasons to think about it. Uh, on the death of Jesus, we're way out of time, uh, so I want to finish this very quickly. And there are other ways to think about Jesus' death. It's a rejection and vindication of the Roman and Jewish authorities. This wasn't Judaism as a whole rejecting Jesus, but the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities uh, rejected him. And yet when Christ or when Jesus was experienced alive again, it was like a rejection of those leaders who killed him in the first place. Number two is kind of related to number one, the defeat of the powers, because it was more than just the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities. This was, uh, there was something behind them that really speaks to human nature, and it was a, a defeat of those things uh, that Jesus has everything to do with the last series, that God's weakness was stronger than the greatest human strength, uh, that that power or hungriness uh, wasn't where it was. Um, the way of Jesus is represented uh, in his death. He chose to be an innocent victim, and he carried it all the way through to the end. Uh, the revelation of God shows up in this. This is where your uh, substitutionary atonement comes in. Uh, so if we can just get there and stay there for a moment and appreciate those who understood literal sacrifice that day, then we can recognize the, the metaphor that this death on a cross was. 
as a statement of Jesus, as of God's grace for everybody. And finally, this is a really cool thing that uh, us in our day, we don't think about. There was a leper colony that Jesus went into, and uh, he healed um, 10 lepers and said, go show yourselves to the priests. And uh, only one thing came in the tent. And then they went and showed themselves to the priests. And the reason why Jesus wanted them to show themselves to the priests wasn't just so that they would get to be part of the fellowship of the Jewish community. But it was to let the priests know that healing was happening apart from the temple. Because the Jewish authorities said, if healing's going to happen at all, it's going to happen through us religious leaders. And the fact that it happened apart from the temple made a massive statement about how big God is for us today. When we think about where Jesus died, you know where Jesus died? Anybody remember? Anybody remember the name of the, the, the hill? Golgotha. Very good. Was Golgotha where the temple was built? No. It was outside of town. So, playing with substitutionary atonement, as seeing sacrifice as a powerful statement, you have God providing a sacrifice, not in the temple where all sacrifices had to be made in order to count, <laughs> but now a sacrifice to end all sacrifices has happened outside of that schema. It's brilliant and provocative. And those early Jesus followers knew it. And they embraced it because of all that it meant. Well, let's get to the cookies. <laughs> so what do you have today? You have delicious dolce de leche cookies. Oh, you guys are here. Uh, yeah. But maybe we can have some folks here. Uh, so grab a, uh, the, the, cookie, the crackers, by the way, are gluten free. So uh, grab, grab one of their good cookies. I'll take a couple of them and share with this. So as you are getting your stuff sorted out with your delicious cookie, oh, you guys can have some cookies. Everybody get one? No. You know you want one. We got the upgrade. All right, you got the upgrade. <laughs> My question for you is what does this remembrance mean for you? Uh, and I'm encouraging you to choose to embrace all of Jesus all the time for all the world. If, if you are most comfortable and the only thing you can do with this symbol is to say, all right, fine, Pete, but for me, it's still the death of Jesus for the coming of the world, forgiveness of sin. Awesome. Awesome. I respect you and I stand with you and eat with you in that remembrance. But I also want to encourage you and everybody else to see the more because it is a much more compelling story than that. And when you see it and taste it, it is so sweet and good. So in that remembrance, take any. Does it taste good? <laughs> Just like the good news of Jesus. Very good. And very good for you. Just like this cookie. <laughs> and the cup. On a more serious note, Jesus had blood coursing through his veins. And he chose to let that blood coursing through his veins take him to very interesting places that were very difficult. 
This is not the sweet success Jesus all the time. I think the way of Jesus does make your life better. But sometimes the way of Jesus takes you right into the belly of the beast. Right into the hardship. Right into the moment to say, this is not right. And we got to do something about it. Sometimes it even means laying down your life. And Jesus did that. So we are sober in our memory of Jesus as we raise a glass and remember. This isn't just fun games. It's not always champagne. But sometimes uh, it is at our own high personal cost that we say yes to this one. Take it. Would you join me in prayer? God, Abba, our loving dad, our loving parents, El Shaddai, God as rested mother who nourishes us and cares for us, who makes Psalm 23 and all of its beauty come to life. Meet us here. Help us remember your deep love for us that is already in us and with us all around us. Help us lean into that, especially when the headlines are dark and there's a lot to be upset about. Help us remember you're bigger, you're more beautiful, and you call us to help make all the world, to bring all the world into that beauty. Everyone, everything. Help us be followers of your way. Help us have an increasing awareness of your spirit's indwelling work in us that leads us to think more and deeply. It causes us to kneel in service. That causes us to stand for grace and justice. That calls us away at times to just be alone, still with your spirit. And calls us back in the community. That we might grow stronger together. All these things, God, we ask for your help. We ask for your your presence, and your companionship. And now I'd ask you to open your eyes and let's pray this rendition of Jesus' prayer that he taught the disciples together. Close our Eternal Spirit, earth maker, pain bearer, life giver, source of all this is and that shall be, father and mother of us all, loving God in whom is heaven, the hallowing of your name echo through the universe. The way of your justice be followed by peoples of the world. Your heavenly will be done by all created beings. Your commonwealth of peace and freedom sustain our hope and come on earth. With the bread we need for today, feed us. And the hurts we absorb from one another, forgive us. In times of temptation and test, strengthen us. From trials too great to endure, spare us. From the grip of all that is evil, Free us, for you reign in the glory of the power that is love now and forever. Amen.